Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own deeply fascinating and absorbing history, like horses, anvils and octopi. <laughs> oh, I'd love to do a history of octopi. I've just... Have I mentioned the um, octopus teacher? Yes, I've yet. seen it. It's brilliant. Oh, isn't it amazing? I've seen it at least twice already. Or... Seeds, needs and beads, reeds, screeds and deeds. Ooh. A screed wailing. Uh, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of benches is all about social rank in ancient Rome. It's about old age, commemoration, crime and it's also about vandalism. Or that the history of cheese is all about Samuel Pepys and the Great Fire of London. It's about micro-history, Ginsburg's Cheese and the Worms. It's about cottage industries and class divisions. It's about the history of manners, politeness and taste. It's also all about maggots. That Sardinian cheese, Kazumazu, uh, is actually considered to be um, very unsafe. It's full of maggots. It's considered to be unsafe when the maggots have died, mm. because that's when the disease uh, sets in. Should we do uh, the history of maggots next? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it on the list then, James. Okay. Put it on the list because I, I, I don't imagine I could... <laughs> Let, let's put it on the list for... <laughs> Let, I don't know. Let's do the history of woolly jumpers. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me, the man who doesn't want to do the history of maggots yet, but I will convince him, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I know you will. He is the lady with the lamp, the Florence Nightingale of historical research, setting the standards for modern history, campaigning for improved creativity in research and rigour in its execution, constantly, carefully tending to the needs of the past. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I, I, I love that. I love that. Um, I love that introduction. Uh, the man not sitting opposite me because we're in uh, the grimmest days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a historical patient, he'd only be Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson himself, who, upon losing his arm at the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife in 1806, refused all help, replying, let me alone. I've got both legs and one arm left. So stoical and gallant was he, the epitome of turn-of-the-century masculinity. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Ah, thank you very much. I'm not sure I'm a Nelson when it comes to injuries and pain, however. Um, if you haven't guessed it, we are doing Patience, the history of Patience again. This is part two, because we enjoyed part one so much. We did far too much research and far too much chat that we never got through through all of our wonderful, wonderful historical 
details um, and accounts to tell you about the history of patience. Uh, here's, here's a lovely little quote, James, from um, just after the First World War. It's about it's from an injured, uh, injured soldier. It reminded me a little bit of the uh, Nelson quote you just said there. My leg? It's off at the knee. Do I miss it? Well, some. You see, I've had it since I was born, and lately a devilish corn. I rather chuckle with glee to think how I've fooled that corn, but I'll hobble round all right. It isn't that. It's my face. Oh, I know I'm a hideous sight, hardly a thing in place. Sort of gargoyle, you'd say. Nurse won't give me a glass, but I see the folks as they pass shudder and turn away. Turn away in distress. Mirror enough, I guess. Isn't that an amazing poem by Robert W. Service called Florette the Wounded Canadian Speaks? Fascinating guy, this. Um, he tries to enlist in the First World War and he's not allowed to. He's turned down because of his varicose veins. <laughs> uh, and then he ends up working as a journalist um, for the Toronto Star and produces some of the most fabulous poetry. So uh, there you go. The first uh, episode, ladies and gentlemen, if you've not come to it yet, I would urge you to listen to that. James talked about how a new perspective on medical history from the view of the patient really allows us to rethink a whole uh, tranches of medical history. Fascinating the way that that has changed over time. I talked a little bit about architecture and how the architecture of hospitals changed and also the types of diseases that you could catch in hospitals. So you'd go with a sprained ankle and you'd come back with some kind of hideous skin bug. That's been a problem for years and it's reflected today in the fear of going to hospital um, uh, in, in, uh, in case people catch COVID. And then, James, you talked a little bit about different sources and um, recipe books, which I thought were absolutely fabulous. Today, we are going to be moving on doing a variety of different things. What have you got in store for us, James? I've got all sorts of stuff. I've got smells and sniffs and noises. I've got religion. Uh, I've, if we have time, I've got a little bit of Samuel Pepys. Uh, and maybe a little bit of Charles Darwin. I just wanted an anecdote, uh, in, uh, introduce a little anecdote about the wonderful Roy Porter, uh, a man that I never met, but I always heard such brilliant things. We started off last episode by talking about his article, The Patient's View of History. Um, he sadly died, you know, uh, quite a while ago now, uh, but was one of those really sort of grand figures in in medical history uh, at the Wellcome Trust. And he seems to have been this a really inspirational figure, not grand in the sense that he's aloof or anything, but just, you know, one of those really inspirational and, you know, dynamic individuals. Um, and so many of my friends knew him and, and had such wonderful things to say about him. And one of the loveliest memories uh, so one of my one of my good friends who now lives in New York had of him was was him cycling along to a dinner party uh, with um, with his um, with his trousers in little cycle straps uh, and two bottles of wine uh, in his in his um, bike basket, um, um, sort of cycling along full of sort of energy and and wit and entertainment. Uh, I think of one of the sort of modern historians that I would love to have met, uh, Roy Porter, uh, would be well up there. Good. Interesting. And he wrote about patience, didn't he? I, I want to know what you've got to say about sniffs and smells and sounds. 
Well, we'll come to that. But it's basically about the sensory idea of history, sensory idea of patience. Mm. If you're thinking about how you recover uh, the experience of patience, how do you go about doing that? You know, you can think about it from, you know, we talked last time about the hospitals. We talked about medicine. We talked about cures. But actually, how do people experience illness? And you, know, you can think about um, you can think about it in terms of symptoms. You can think about it in terms of diagnosing. But what about the sort of the 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 actual smells and noises and and all of that? The sights, smells, tastes. You know, so basically, the sensory history. And I came across a brilliant uh, new project uh, by a really innovative. Uh, historian called Hannah Newton, uh, who's at my alma mater, uh, uh, where I did my PhD, uh, the University of Reading. Um, her first book was on the sick child in early modern England. Um, and she's working on a, a book called Misery to Mirth, Recovery from Illness in Early Modern England, and also a new project called Sensing Sickness in Early Modern England. And this is basically, it's <clears throat> it's coming out of a sort of history of emotions approach to medical history and, and, and senses. And what she's interested in is looking at the way in which we can think about how that sort of, how we experience the history of disease and illness from senses. And there's a, a little blog that I've, I've been reading of hers. And she's got a lovely woodcut there. Um, uh, which is um, by P. Boone, which is in the Wellcome Library uh, in London, and it's titled The Sense of Smell. And what you've got is five figures, one of whom is sitting on what looks like a, a wood stump, and he's basically throwing up his guts. Uh, and so you've got this sort of this sort of jet of vomit uh, coming out, and the people standing around him are all holding their noses. So you've got that sort of the sense of stench, mm associated with with disease think about the sort of smell of that gangrene would have if you're sort of lopping somebody's arm off uh, or their you know their their leg or something like that the smell of putrefaction um what's interesting here also though is that the only person who isn't holding their nose is a is a woman uh uh covered with a with a hat and and with a, a, a sort of um a robe on and she seems to be in this the the sort of person who is who's administering to him but also one of the other things is how do how do the people who are viewing the sick respond to illness how do you respond to people who are you know sniffing or coughing or snorting or whatever that's associated with you know with 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 illness parents you know, find it very difficult to deal with the the sort of sights and sounds of children in pain. You know, children who are ill and crying or children who are, you know, particularly hot, um, you know, they find that really traumatic. There's a um, an, an example of a Suffolk clergyman, a man called Isaac Archer, who in 1669 in his diary writes about the sickness of his his little daughter, uh, Mary, and he laments, Oh, what grief was it to me to hear it groan, to see its sprightly eyes turn to me for help in vain. So there's that sense of sort of almost helplessness of, you know, of, of parents looking on at, at, at children and the sounds that they're, that they're making, they're groaning for, for sort of help. Um, and there's another 
extract from a diary again this time of a, a married uh, woman uh, Mary Pennington um, who is sort of lived for much of the long 17th century and her husband was particularly ill and when he was when he was ill uh, he was groaning uh, and she described these as dreadful roarings um, and 40 years later after after his death she still remembers really vividly these you know the the noises that her husband was making as he had these sort of incredible fits um during this period of his illness so there we are there's just a little sort of you know a little sort of insight into that kind of you know the bell the, the sort of the smells and whiffs of patients yeah no it's it's really important point as well especially um in our modern world today where there has been a, um some really powerful stories of racism linked with coronavirus and covid and people being uh, and uh, xenophobia essentially people being afraid of uh, getting too close to chinese people early on uh, before it had become um, the global epidemic that it is now i thought that was really interesting and it made me think a little bit about this reaction to illness and there's a, a very obvious way of looking at this and that's mutilation and disfigurement um, because of war and now you can apply it to all sorts of wars but uh, I came across a, a wonderful um, uh, article here portraits of violence war and the aesthetics of disfigurement let's pause for that train published by the University of Michigan Press in 2017 and it takes as the starting point just how many British soldiers suffered head or eye injuries in the First World War. You've got a figure here of 60,500. Um, and that says, this is all to do with the face, essentially, is what I wanted to talk to you about, because it's it, to do with aversion to particular types of injuries as witnessed and seen from nursing staff, from doctors, but also from the injured soldiers' families and from the general public. There's a, there was a specialist hospital for facial injuries in Kent near Sidcup, and over 11,000 operations were performed there between 1917 and 1925. There's wonderful uh, historical sources for historians to get at. There are x-rays, there are surgical diagrams, there are photographs, there are stereographs, there are plaster casts, there are models, um, all of which vividly, especially those three-dimensional ones, recreate the, um, the, the, the powerful impact that these facial visual injuries had. And what's interesting about it is just how much the anxiety around that was visual, uh, it manifested itself in a visual way. So patients we know refuse to see, to see, literally think about, to see their or be seen by their families, uh, fiancés, their friends. Um, you've got children which who are accounts of them fleeing, running away at the sight of their injured fathers coming home. There's evidence of nurses struggling to look their patients in the face. So you've got a kind of a, a clear cultural aversion response to disfigured veterans, which uh, which is fascinating, a little aspect of history in its own right. And one of the interesting things about it is how the it it, it kind of manifests itself in several forms, uh, one of which is that there are no mirrors. There are no mirrors put on the facial wards. Um, 
uh, secondly, linked to what I was saying in the first episode about the geography of patients, about where patients are actually put in hospitals. So I talked uh, before about how mental illness was often a reason to 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 split up patients from others for fear that they would cause disruption and for fears over security. But with these facial wards, that you have physical and, and psychological isolation of patients with severe facial injuries. Um, so they are literally put apart from other people for the fear of, of how they might impact on other patients. And there's also a certain amount of self-censorship which becomes possible about what can be seen with the development of prosthetic masks covering up certain um, certain aspects of the injured face. Um, and it's even visible in the British press and the propaganda. You've got this uh, unofficial but very provable um, censorship of disfigured veterans. Um, it's become very much a, a sort of hidden history. Historians started working on it uh, in the last five years or so, and much more work's been done on it, which is which is all to the good. There are some... Um, actually, I, th- I think one, one of the most vivid descriptions comes from, the, uh, from Ward Muir. Uh, he wrote something called The Happy Hospital, published in 1918. He was a corporal in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and he'd had a bit of success as a novelist before he he wrote The Happy Hospital. He'd written articles in Spectator and Country Life, The New Statesman. And in the final chapter of his book, he devotes it to the facial ward um, and describes a, a very vivid uh, sort of sense of human wreckage in front of him. Hideous is the only word for these smashed faces, the socket with some twisted moist slit with a lash or two adhering feebly which is all that is traceable of the forfeited eye the skewed mouth which sometimes in spite of brilliant dentistry contrivances results from the loss of a segment of jaw and worse far worse the incredibly brutalizing effects which are the consequences of wounds in the nose and which reach a climax of mournful grotesquerie when the nose is missing altogether so there we've got someone who is actually describing the uh, what he sees as the horror of the patients. But then you can see the other side of it, James, what you were talking about at the beginning of um, the first episode from the patient's perspectives. And uh, this is fascinating because a lot of the patients with facial injuries who um, that they go to, to rehab, one aspect of their rehabilitation is to write essays um, entitled My Personal Experiences and Reminiscences of the Great War. So you've got people with, with facial injuries trying to come to terms with what happened. Um, there's all sorts of shared experiences, despair particularly, um, but a, a sort of non-committal and, and quite offhand way in which they describe being injured in the first place and several of them describe the smack of a bullet hitting their own face so there's a, a, a an entire um, pool of historical sources there which you can access describing how these people got injured from their own perspective um, so a bit of patient's perspective there as well James but it's a fascinating fascinating uh, aspect of this ineluctable facts of history <laughs> <Sam. is>. ineluctable <laughs> So I'm going to talk about Samuel Pepys and Charles Darwin now. And I'm going to talk about this from the perspective of patients describing 
their own illness. So it's getting at that sort of patient's view of history here. Um, I think in the last episode, I described how Samuel Pepys, in his brilliant diaries, uh, recorded 1,017 entries relating to ill health and illness. And topics included bladder and kidney stones, fleas, galenical medicine, gout, hospitals, measles, plague, scarlet fever, scrofula, tuberculosis, smallpox, turpentine, urine and venice treacle. Um, he, Peeps, throughout his life, suffered from bladder and kidney stones. And he had this from a very early age. He used to refer to it as the stone. And quite early on uh, in... When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Um, in 1658, he decides to have an operation to have it removed, and... He basically has a, an incision uh, between his scrotum and anus, an incision made of about three inches long made uh, to remove the stone from his bladder. And apparently this stone was about the size of a, a snooker oh. ball. So quite, you know, quite, quite, a, quite a large um, or a billiard ball. So quite a large sort of stone that he's that he's removed. And he 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 sort of you know he gets through it he recovers from the operation um and in fact he keeps the bladder stone as a sort of you know rather macabre souvenir and he he thinks that he will celebrate the operation with a banquet or what he describes as a stone feast <laughs> on its on its on its anniversary for a for a good few years um but he nonetheless he still suffers uh, you know, a certain degree of pain uh, related to it and has sort of sporadic bouts of, um, you know, of, of, of soreness. And there's one entry uh, in his diary uh, many years later on Sunday, the 26th of March, 1665, which I want to read to you. Lord's Day and Easter Day, up and with my wife, who has not been at church a month or two to church. At noon, home to dinner, and my wife and I, Mercer staying to the sacrament alone. This is the day seven years which, by the blessing of God, I survived of my being cut of the stone, and am now in very perfect good health, and have long been. And though the last winter hath been as hard a winter as any have been these many years, I have never was better in my life, nor have not these ten years gone colder in the summer than I have done all this winter. 
wearing only a doublet and a waistcoat cut open at the back, abroad a cloak and within doors a cloak coat I slipped on. Now I am at a loss to know whether it be my hare's foot which is my preservative against wind, for I have... I never had a fit of the colic since I wore it, and nothing but wind brings me pain, and the carrying away of wind takes away my pain, or my keeping my back cool. For when I do lie longer than ordinary upon my back in bed, my water the next morning is very hot, or whether it be my taking of a pill of turpentine every morning, which keeps me always loose, or altogether, but I know with thanks to God Almighty that I am now as well as ever I can wish or desire to be, having now and then little grudgings of wind that brings me a little pain. But it is over presently, only I do find that my back grows very weak, that I cannot stoop to write or tell money without sitting, but I have pain for a good week after it. Yet a week or two ago I had one day's great pain, but it was upon my getting a bruise on one of my testicles, and then I did void two small stones without pain though, and upon my going to bed and bearing up of my testicles I was well the next. But I did observe that my sitting with my back to the fire at the office did then, as it do at all times, make my back ache and my water hot and brings me some pain. I mean, it's an extraordinary passage there where he's not only describing... The, the stone that he'd had, the operation that he's had, but also a sort of, you know, very intimate um, description of his daily regimen and his relationship with pain. You know, I, I think it's quite extraordinary. And the way in which religion comes in there, you know, that he, he's thanking God for being for being OK. So religion is a way in which he's in which he's sort of explaining uh, his illness. But I think, you know, it's first-hand accounts like that it's ego documents like letters um, journals diaries where we actually find much of the detail about patient views of history now another person who was very good at recording uh, his health and illness was Charles Darwin and we did a special episode on Darwin so I don't want to trespass on that too much because I think we spoke about this there. But one of the things that is extraordinary is not only does he record his illness in his correspondence, but also he kept an illness journal, which he kept for his doctor. Now, Darwin has all sorts of you know ailments throughout his life. There's a period where he goes through uh, a period of, of vomiting very regularly. Uh, and he actually uses something called a spinal ice bag uh, to treat this. Uh, and there's an advert in his notes for Dr Chapman's spine bags, designed for the practical application of the principles of neurodynamic medicine. The spinal ice bags vary in breadth from two to four inches and a quarter, the shortest bag being the narrowest and the longest the broadest. Uh, the spinal ice bag is divided into cells, generally three, but this arrangement, the ice being prevented from falling from the upper parts to the bottom of the bag, can be kept in apposition with the whole or any special part of the spine, even though the patient should be uptight or should walk about. The mouth of all the cells are so effectively closed by a means of a clamp 
that like a water can escape even though the whole of the ice be melted. Imagine this sort of like a, it's like a sort of little water bottle uh, with a strap uh, that would be full of ice and that you'd strap to your back. And he used this when he was, uh, when he was vomiting. It's also a treatment for epilepsy. What I'm really interested in is the diary, uh, this journal, illness journal that he kept for his doctor. Uh, and I just want to read you um, some some extracts from this. Age 56 to 57, for 25 years, extreme spasmodic daily and nightly flatulence, occasional vomiting on two occasions, prolonged during months, extreme secretion of saliva with flatulence, vomiting preceded by shivering, hysterical crying, dying sensations, or half-faint and copious, very pallid urine, now vomiting and every paroxysm of flatulence, preceding by singing of ears, rocking, treading on air and vision, focus and black dots, all fatigue, specially reading, brings on these head symptoms, nervous when E leaves me. When I vomit, what I vomit, intensely acid, slimy, sometimes bitter, corrodes teeth. Doctors puzzled, say suppressed gout, family gouty, no organic mischief, Jenna and Brinton. Tongue crimson in morning, ulcerated, stomach constricted, dragging, feet coldish, pulse 58 to 62, or slower and like thread. Appetite good, not thin. Evacuation regular and good, urine scanty because do not drink, often much pinkish sediment when cold, seldom headache or nausea, cannot walk above half a mile, always tired, conversation or excitement tires me most, heavy sleep, bad day, eczema, now constant lumbago, fundament rash. That is the most extraordinary set of notes about his about his health all in his you know spider-like scrawl in his handwriting uh but i think again what it gives is a sort of is a very good uh a very good sort of um insight into the ailments of a of an individual um and i think if you're if you're interested in this kind of history trawling the archives for these kinds of documents is is really important i mean it's it's amazing the degree to which he is self-prescribing that he's studying his um, you know his um the way in which he's feeling his illness his health and one can only imagine that you know that this is part and parcel of his his his, his training uh as a sort of as a as a scientist yeah. uh, that we're seeing coming in there it's um both of those accounts actually has made me realize just how vulnerable you are as a patient Essentially, um, especially that one from Peeps, um, who's got hot water and his testicles are hurting, and, he, and that man can't move. And there is a whole and important history of protecting patients, uh, which is something that I just I stumbled across um, because I decided to have a look at I, Great Ormond Street, the children's hospital, because what we've talked about up to now is essentially accounts of patients or being adult patients, either accounts from the adult perspective, the patient perspective, or or um, from doctors but what about the kids and it's very difficult to understand their experience of it because they don't leave as much um, written material so I'd be fascinated actually to see if there are projects that have been done around Great Ormond Street but the protecting side of it was interesting and I was wondering about protecting particularly vulnerable 
patients uh, in in times of war specifically, but it's actually a more general point. And I came across uh, an account of William Pendle. Um, he's a Londoner, born in 1873. He served in the Royal Navy as a stoker from 1894 to 1919. By the time the Second World comes along, he's a boiler stoker at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London. So he's keeping the boilers going. He's keeping those at Hospital for Children warm. And he's awarded the George Medal for dealing with an incendiary bomb that falls on top of his roof. Uh, this is the account from the London Gazette. When this hospital was bombed, the explosion shattered the furnaces and burst gas and water mains. Pendle was in the stoke hole when the explosion blew the burning coal from his furnace into the rooms. Three water mains and a gas main were burst, the gas catching fire. Through the openings into the stoke hole, flames could be seen rising to a height of 70 feet and water in enormous volume burst into this part of the building, filling up the coal bunkers below and then rising rapidly in the stoke hole itself. Through all this inferno, Pendle calmly proceeded to draw his fires, shut off steam and made all as safe as possible, not leaving until this was done. By this time the water was swirling up to his waist and then he had to struggle to the narrow staircase through floating debris to reach ground level. Interestingly, we've also got William's own description of what's going on here in this hospital. Uh, and this, The end of it's really important because it raises uh, an interesting question. As soon as I went up the stairs to the back of the boiler room, I could see what had happened. The bomb had busted the lot, broken the water mains and fired the gas. Seeing what was going on and the water coming along like a river, I went back to my boiler to draw the fire and get the pressure down. It was lucky I'd only one of the three boilers working. It was summertime and also not working to full strength on account of the war. The pressure being steady at 36 pounds, I began to rake out the fire and I went on raking until the pressure dropped to nothing. I walked through the wards and corridors. The lower ground floor was like a deep river. From the first to the fifth floors, all was dark and forlorn. On the sixth, there was utter devastation. Battered and twisted cots mingled with shattered telephones, children's toys, storybooks, fallen masonry and rubble. There had been no children recently in this shattered ward, but a toy cupboard had burst open, giving an added and authentic horror to the scene. So there we've got some amazing first-hand uh, accounts there of this bomb falling onto the roof of the boiler room at Great Ormond Street Hospital. But James, what, I, what I'm really fascinated here by was this description of the children's toys and the storybooks and the toy cupboard. And it made me realise that, of course, there's, a, that there's a, an amazing material culture of patience. And particularly here, we're looking at the material culture of child patients in the Second World War. And that's something which um, would, would be worth looking into, I reckon. Yeah, there's a foundation nowadays that um, provides children teddy bears when they go into mm. hospital. Uh, my youngest had a whole collection uh, of, teddy, of yellow teddy bears uh, when she had to go in for various sort of asthma-related uh, problems when she was a little, little one. Uh, bronchiolitis she used to suffer from quite regularly, so we were sort of in and out of A&E and spending time overnight and she was given a little teddy bear to keep her keep her yeah. comforted uh, throughout the night which was lovely now to end i'd like to talk about as i promised about religion and sickness um in the 16th and 17th century largely the 17th century and one of the reasons that we're able to do this is largely because during 
the 17th century, you have a massive crop of diaries, spiritual journals uh, by by vicars all over the country, uh, religious clergymen um, who record their day to day life. Um, and part and parcel of that is their accounts of illness. And what's extraordinary about this is the way in which we are able to see at this time of sort of what what is largely you know a very sort of a period of religious upheaval through the, the sort of 17th century um civil war and all that um restoration uh changing fortunes in religious terms um there's a lot of detailed information about sickness um and i've been reading um alan withy's work here uh for this um various sort of books uh, that he's that he's written on this. Um, and one of the figures that he he, he studies is a, a Puritan called Philip Henry. Um, and there's a quote from from uh, his journal uh, in 1657, where he, he says, they that are whole need not a physician. Sin is the sickness of the soul and sin-sick souls stand in great need of a physician, and that physician is none other than Jesus Christ. So in a sense, what he's arguing there is that is that sickness is a test from God, and that the behaviour, the way in which you behave, causes illness. So your sinfulness manifests itself on your body. Um, there is a, another great... Um, uh, diary uh, or collection of remembrances by a woman called Elizabeth Freak, who lived between 1642 and 1714. Uh, but in 1706, she's, a, she's widowed. Uh, she owns an estate in, in Norfolk. Um, and she's got these incredible volume, manuscript volumes, two sets of remembrances that are in the British Library that chart uh, her you know, this this period of her life. Um and they're 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 sort of compendious volumes. They're commonplace books that have biographical notes in it, family records, but also a whole range of recipes and remedies. But what I'm interested in in particular is the way in which she interprets um in the way in which she interprets her illness. And there's an extract uh, where she describes in 1712 during an outbreak of of smallpox that my cook maid died of it stark mad in about 10 days time by the doctors giving her a vomit when the spots were coming out but my own maid martha recovered it by god's blessing on my endeavors in other words what she's arguing there is that it was god's will that her maid survived the cook died but the maid survived her own maid martha uh, the, the, this this collection of manuscript remembrances though is extraordinary for how she describes her sort of medical health and this is a woman who who seems to have been really ailing throughout her her life she has r rheumatism pleurisy colic and for many years she she's disabled and her manuscript volumes are absolutely full of mentions of illness. A typical entry uh, comes from February 14th and 15th in 1712. Um, and she she writes, a violent, she's taken with a violent pleurisy 
in my left side, and the next day she sent to Mr Smith to blood me for it at night in my bed, where before I could have any ease I lost above three score ounces of blood at the age of above seventy years and have laboured ever since under so violent a cough and weakness as to be incapable of any business or comfort and with the violence of my cough for four months want of rest and so much bleeding I am almost totally deprived of my eyesight an insupportable grief to me and no friend near me though I have this four months every day expected my last summons, which with most humble patience I do attend till God shall release his miserable servant out of all my miseries, or raise me as he shall see good and best for Eliza Freak. So it's this sort of introspection and detail that she's describing it, and again, it's the presence of God there. But one final one, and you'll love this, Sam, um, she describes how a, a servant of hers, Henry Crutland, uh, shot off his hand with killing of a pigeon. And she then goes on to say that he lay under the hand of a surgeon four months in a most sad condition. And then by his importunity and the parishes, I took it to cure, which I humbly thank my God I did. I effectually did it. He was the patientest creature I ever saw. He held his own hat before his face while his fingers and wrist were sawed off and never cried, oh, or shed one tear. Could you imagine uh, that? Just no, There's no no anaesthetic. You just put your, your, your hat over your face so that you can't see it and then have your fingers and wrists sawed wow. off. Wow, that's horrendous. Um, I, I hope you've enjoyed that uh, podcast on the history of patience. I've absolutely loved it. I had no idea where it, where it was going to go, um, and it was something I really enjoyed researching and talking about. If you are enjoying it, please leave us a rating or and or a review on iTunes. A lovely one here from Erica G92. Fantastic homeschooling history. This is an amazing podcast. I love it. The homeschooling episodes were invaluable for my kids during lockdown when schools were closed. Funny, accessible and aligned to the national curriculum. Thanks, guys. Another one here from Phoebe Cousins 95. The best history podcast out there. Absolutely faultless and makes history accessible to all. Thank you so much for those. Um, uh, you can follow me, please, on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. If you like maritime and naval history, you need to check out my new podcast dedicated to only maritime and naval history. It's called The Mariner's Mirror and it's enormously good fun. And you can follow me at James Daybell and you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. And as you would imagine, it is almost Christmas. I think there are seven weeks till Christmas and we have a whole series of books for you to buy. Go along to our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com if you want a signed book uh, to slip in somebody's Christmas stocking or under the tree. Do you know, I was down in Port Isaac last week and went to Padstow and the terrific bookstore 
in Padstow had three of our Whee! books. They didn't have the one on Vikings, but they had the one on Romans, they had the one on the Tudors, and they had the one on World War Two. Very good. So we've got the Bane book, we've got the series books. We'd love to sign them, and we'd love to do a personalised Christmas message. So do please be sure to check out the website. Thank you all so much for listening, guys, and we'll be back soon um, once I've convinced James that we're going to do the History of Maggots. It might take a few weeks, but bear with me. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.